Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name's Tom Rambler. Thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. Those of you who have followed this podcast over the past uh, year and a half or so, almost two years in fact, will know that uh, we've been tracking the developments in extremism, radicalisation across the world, not only here in Australia. And uh, what we're noticing in Australia more and more is media uh, finding out ways to expose people who are members of particular organisations. Now, this highlights the growth of extremist organisations, highlights how people move from one organisation to another. But one of the critical issues to explore is what happens on the side of the person being exposed. Um, you know, what occurs in their mind when they're exposed in the media and how that impacts on those individuals when uh, when things progress. There's somebody who's familiar with that and will be familiar to some of you who've listened to Critical Line Item over to the time is Jeff Scoop. Now, Jeff's a former uh, extremist. He was the, the head honcho, uh, main director of the National Socialist Movement for 25 years. He now heads Beyond Barriers. Beyond Barriers is, a, is an organisation that aims to encourage people to disengage from extremism uh, and, and draw themselves out of the life uh, that Jeff and others once had. Jeff, it's great to be back uh, back in contact with you. How have things been? Hey, Tom, thanks for having me on the program. Things are busy, busy here, but uh, we're doing good work and, and trying to make a difference. So thanks for having me on the program again. Absolute pleasure. Look, it, it, one of the things that we spoke about uh, in a previous podcast is looking at the role of the media and how the media in some ways gets played uh, by extremist groups, given the nature of the content, given the way in which uh, that, uh, that content is um, well, the, uh, sort of disseminated and, and the tactics that, that, are, that are used, whether it be talkback radio, whether it be stickering campaigns or whatever. Um, what we don't explore, I don't think particularly well, is what happens when an extremist is outed. That is, their name appears somewhere and it becomes a matter of public knowledge, whether it's through you know, Twitter online or whatever else. Um, as somebody who's been doxxed previously in your previous life, what happens? Well, that's a really good question, and I think it's a great discussion to have um, because it's something that, <clears throat> excuse me, it's something that a lot of people don't cover or really think about. They just think it's a great idea to dox these people, to expose them, to, to put it out there online and everywhere so they have problems in their life, and, and their, uh, the idea behind it, I think, is, is in a way to shame them and, and things like that. But um, as somebody that has been doxxed in the past and, and uh, has went through that, and as someone now uh, working with Beyond Barriers, we work with people that have been doxxed in the past and, and things like that. And we do listen to the online chatter and, and uh, of, how, of how people that are doxxed feel as well. So besides what we've experienced ourselves, what we're dealing with directly, we hear a lot of different things from different people. And, and I can tell you just from my own personal journey and my own personal experience, when I was in the far right movement and I was doxxed or 
put under pressure and in that way, shape or form it, I doubled down. I doubled down on everything that I was doing. I was like, you know, if they think they're going to intimidate me, they think they're going to push me around. Guess what? I'm going to push back. I'm going to be twice as active. I'm going to do more, et cetera, et cetera. And it, very rarely in my experience that the people that have been doxxed and I can count them on one hand, the number of people that I know of that actually left the movement from being doxxed, I can count on one hand. And most of those people were not hardcore ideologues. They probably would have left any little push might've gotten them out. Um, so I don't even credit that to doxing. I think doxing is a, is a negative way of, of going about things. I don't think it's helpful. Um, and in my experience, it typically further radicalizes. And, and some of the chatter that we're hearing and some of the things that people are saying about that in particular is that when they're doxed, even if they, even if they want to leave, even if they're thinking about leaving, they feel stuck. Now they feel like, hey, I've forever been, you know, put out online as this individual, this neo-Nazi or whatever it is. I've been put out as this and it's going to be there forever. And that's so now I'm stuck. I'm stuck with this extremist organization. I have no other options, but I have to stay there. And that's how that's how a lot of them think and feel when that happens. Um, and, and that's, I would say in my experience, that's the major, how the majority of them feel. They want to push back. And then even those that do question it or, or that feel like later on that maybe they should leave, they feel stuck. And, um, sometimes the leaders of those groups, there was a young man that I, I just spoke with, um, in the last week. And he had told me what, before he left the organization that he was a part of, um, because he was doxxed, he was put out online and he said, he goes, the leader of the organization told me when I was resigning that I shouldn't leave because I've been put out online and I'll forever be hunted as a Nazi for the rest of my life. And I, I told the, this young man, I said, you know, that's not true. And, you know, we'll walk with you. But that's how they feel. What then happens? I mean, if you, if you look at somebody who ends up losing their employment because of something that's said about them in this context. Uh, in your experience, what's, what's happened uh, to those individuals when they've reverted, when they've sort of had spare time on their hands? Well, <clears throat> you know, so a lot of times uh, when somebody is doxxed, they do lose their employment. That's a pretty common uh, thing that happens. And um, and again, I feel like that pushes them further back into that into that extremist mindset. And now if they're out of work, you know, it's the families that suffer. Sometimes the children are suffering, the wives, girlfriends, whatever. Um, uh, and, you know, a lot of people don't think about that. And then that person has that extra time on their hands, which they're more than likely going to put into the organization and, and doing even more activism. So now you've, you've uh, you know, the people that have doxxed this individual have cost them their job. They're mad as mad as mad can be. And, um, you know, now, now they have more time on their hands too. So it's, it's just a vicious cycle. Uh, is there an example from your time in the movement, which was basically half your, half your life, um, that you're able to share in terms of how how the, the, the doxing specifically affected you? How it affected me personally? Yeah. 
Well, I can think of uh, one time in particular when I was at a rally and um, I was doxxed while I was gone and, and the VIN numbers from my car were put out online, all, you, you name it. And, uh, you know, so I, had, I was out of state. So I sent people over to check on the house and, and things like that. But uh, again, what it did was it, it made me angry and it didn't, uh, didn't cause me to second, second guess anything that I was doing. In fact, it just made me more, it, it provided more fuel and more anger in, and uh, I put it back into the, into the organization rather than the opposite. And it's typically, we don't see the opposite happening very often where, where a person gets discouraged by, by that sort of thing. So for me, it just, it just pissed me off for, for lack of a better term. The, when we look at, when we look at what you just said, what you said and, uh, and the analysis you gave earlier in terms of what, the mood, what it causes people to do internally that is in their mind. Um, what does it, I mean, how should we really be dealing with that now to, as, a, as a community? Because it's not, there is a certain voyeurism in, in sort of exposing groups uh, that, are do, that are in effect, as you acknowledge, <laughs> Um, after leaving uh, you know, the bit, bit, bit destructive when it comes to social cohesion and all that all that kind of thing how how do we deal with that because there's a there's a there's a public interest in understanding that these organizations exist that individuals are members of them um, and that there are times when these groups uh, enter into what is violent extremist activity that's undeniable. Right? Nobody right. can argue that. No, I did, but so. How do you deal with that? Because somewhere along the line, doxing of leaders and coverage of those who are leaders and members will occur. What is the best way in dealing with that in your view? Well, and I, I do understand the other the other side of that <clears throat> is that by exposing the people that are in it, it puts pressure on them. It uh, um, you know, and it has, it has that effect. So I, under, I understand both sides of the argument and, and I'm not necessarily saying what is right, what is wrong. I'm not, I'm not necessarily in that position. I, I'm just speaking yeah. from my own lived experience and how, how it works. And um, I think there's a difference between the leadership and, and the membership. So like your average foot soldier in the movement is not somebody that's out there in front of the cameras. You know, they might be at a rally or something. <clears throat> Excuse me. They might be at a rally or something, but they wouldn't be necessarily speaking in front of the cameras and, and things like that. Whereas the leaders, um, they know they're going to be doxxed and they're out there and, and they don't really care. It's not, it's not hurting them because they, they're, they already know that's going to happen. They, they expect that. But your average foot soldier that's in these movements, um, that's, that's the individuals I feel that really get hurt by the doxing. And, um, and then they feel like if, say, they second guess it, say it's a phase, say that they're, um, or they've, they've had a change of heart or whatever it might be, um, later on down the line. Once they've been doxxed, that tactic will be used to keep them in place, to keep them stuck in that movement, even if they don't wholeheartedly believe in it anymore, but to keep them stuck there. And I think that's where 
um, I have a real issue with with that. You know, as a as somebody that was leading from that from that side, we expected that. You know, that wasn't that wasn't any surprise. But I think for like the average foot soldier, when that happens to them, it, it causes a lot of. Uh, of, of pain and and um you know on the flip side of that people would say well hey these guys that are in these movements they're saying hateful things some of them are doing hateful things but i and i think um in your question there's something really important was said there too if and when that that uh traverses over to violence like say that person is engaged in violence at that point and they're doing illegal activities <clears throat> you know, then I then I think that's a little different. I think, you know, the public does need to know who that is and, and what they're up to and, and, and things of that nature. So I think if somebody's doing something illegal or promoting violence or something like that, then, you know, all bets are off. That person needs to, be, you know, the public needs to be aware of that, you know. Um, so, you know, this is, I have a, a little bit of a different way of looking at these things, I think, than a lot of people do, but um, that's my opinion on it. I know we probably be revisiting uh, some uh, discussion we had before, but it's worthwhile going there for completeness. Um, there is a very challenging issue in newsrooms where you see extremist activity of varying kinds. Um, that, that emerges on, on, whether it be on the streets. We've seen it here in Australia, in our national capital. There's a, there are people who are, you know, who have adopted a particular extreme view on uh, the legitimacy of government, the legitimacy of vaccination mandates, mask mandates, and every other mandate under the sun. Uh, it'll get to the point where, where I start to think that they're uh, they're out there for a good time, but. The how do you think? Or what do you think of the way in which the media should be reporting this? Because as we said earlier, there's a there is a public interest in knowing what sort of forces are at play in our community. That's undeniable. What is Jeff Scoops? playbook when it comes to uh, reporting responsibly on extremist movements? Well, I think the first thing, the first thing is when re uh, reporting on extremist movements is not to name, <coughs> excuse me. That's right. The first thing, sorry about that. The first thing I think that it's, that's really important is not to name the particular organizations. I think from a news media standpoint, we can that um, it is responsible to cover the news and to cover those uh, activities that are going on, but not necessarily to name the group. And, and I'm saying that from the standpoint of, from my former life when I was running the NSM, anytime the media reported on us, if our name got in the press, that translated into hits to the website, which translated into um, new people subscribing to our email lists, are um, joining the group, that sort of thing. Whereas if something was covered and it said, for example, neo-Nazi rally in Kansas City, 
and it didn't say the organization's name or it didn't show a picture of see the organization and what I was doing at the time got smart about that too and said, okay, let's have our banner out front that has the website, a phone number, that sort of thing on it. So when they report, they're going to see that. So some media outlets, I've seen this done where they'll blur that out. They'll blur out the web address or, or that sort of thing or the organizational name and just say, Nazi rally or something like that. So I think there, there's that fine line, in my opinion, that you can still cover those things. You can still be a response, responsible from a uh, newsworthy standpoint, but not name the organization. That way they cannot use it to recruit. What's the, um, I mean, naming individuals is something else that can cause a bit of, uh, a bit of sort of a philosophical um debate uh, what is it how do you how do you feel about the naming of individuals in this context in the sense of like the the spokespeople or like just generally like every person that's out there uh in terms of the, the spokespeople of organizations like this that's a good question. And that's something that I, I think it's really difficult to, to pinpoint that down because in some cases it's newsworthy to cover that, probably to cover that individual. But at the same time, we don't, uh, I think as a civil society, we don't want to give them that credibility because on the name recognition alone, then person can look up that individual. They'll say, well, who is this uh, guy or lady that was out there speaking? Oh, well, the media said it was so-and-so. Well, I'm going to look them up and then by proxy, they can find that person's uh, organization or what they're representing. So it's, it's, that's a tough question. That's, it's tough to, it's tough to say, because I think sometimes, I think if you don't name the individual, then from a news standpoint, um, are you doing your job? I, I don't know. That's a really good question. I got to wrap my mind around this one. Um, Cause that's, that's a tough one. That's, that's really hard to, to say where is that where is that balance? That's that's a good question. Because if you, if you, if for example, people are on certain messaging apps or are online, they can track. You know, today they can track that kind of thing down fairly easily, and that's part of the sort of the, the digital digital climate that we're that we're in. What. You will obviously, through the people you help and, and, and your own resources, monitor what goes on online and in messaging apps. Um, how, what are you observing in terms of the growth of far-right groups on, on, on specific apps that we don't necessarily need to name here? Well, we're, see, we're seeing a lot of the we're seeing an increase, I think, in, in it. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, the things that the world's been through with COVID, where people are feeling isolated, they're, they're shut in, they have more time on their hands, they're not out, uh, you know, having a social life in, in some cases, and, and they're finding more time online, and, and uh, they're discovering these groups. And then you have different aspects where a lot of social media companies don't want this type of, of rhetoric spewed online. So they're um, censoring it. And then the people are ending up, uh, the extremists are gravitating to different channels, which we won't name, but they're gravitating to those places where they're, they're uh, more apt to 
be stuck in an echo chamber where they don't have uh, anybody questioning them because they're in their own little, you know, secure bubbles where, where that's all they hear. So it's, it's very, it, it leads to that cult-like behavior. And I know we've discussed this before, but where you're in this echo chamber behind these barriers and all you're hearing, all that you're taking in from music to news to, to everything is propaganda. And then the people around you, your social circle, all, all back up that same propaganda too. You're not, you're not engaging with mm. the public and you're not having that, uh, that free speech. What should the tech platforms do in this context? Hmm. Well, you know, my idea on this maybe is, is not, is not what the mainstream, the mainstream seems to believe that by censoring these people and censoring free speech, that it's going to somehow put a big dent in it and it's going to, um, there more people won't be exposed to it. I feel like uh, the free exchange of ideas and, uh, and ideologies back and forth is important and it's important to have those discussions as long as they're not promoting violence, illegal activity, those, those kind of things have no place online in my opinion and those people should be kicked off of those platforms and not, uh, or prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. But uh, in, other, in, other, in other stances, and when we look at freedom of speech and the exchange of ideas, if no one is there to say, like if, if you put out something that's just this, this racist propaganda and no one is there to say, look, this is, this is why I don't like this. This is why what you put out is a lie or it's dishonest or it's not true. And, and having that dialogue, having that discussion, civil discourse, if we don't have that in society anymore, I think it, it um, encourages the growth of those echo chambers and allows for um, extremism to grow in those sectors, whether it's right, left, religious, you name it. I think all those sectors are, are growing. And I think it's because we don't have that civil discourse anymore. And, and I think it's a shame. Let's let's just expand on that for a moment. Now, there will be those who say that that there are certain ideologies that lead naturally to violent activity, right? Um, and to, to, if we look at the work of Gordon Allport and social psychologists like him, who've seen movements grow from you know the, the rhetorical through to actual to the abuse of people on the streets through to violence and through to, and the most most heinous of examples obviously uh, through the sort of extermination or genocide of, of, uh, of people who uh, were of a certain faith um <laughs> Where is the line? This is what some. This is the challenge that we have. You know, where is the line? At what point do you draw it? That's a great question. <clears throat> you know, on my own journey out, one of the things that one of the final straws when I was looking at, you know, examining my life and what I was doing and things like that, um, I was looking at examples within the organization of of people that I that I knew that were saying horrible, violent things and that, that believed horrible, violent things. 
and and I said to myself, well, I don't believe that. I don't th I don't think that, but I still agree with these other things. You know, when I was I'm talking about when I was still in, and yeah. and I was trying to make sense of it. And then I've also processed the fact that that ideology that I was part of in some cases has driven people to go commit acts of violence. So it is a really good question to ask, like, where is that fine line? Where does it, where does it go from being just gross, um, ugly rhetoric to driving somebody to action? Of course, you've got to have personal responsibility. If a person is, um, you, know, you know, going and committing acts of, of, of violence on someone else, there has to be personal responsibility. But if an ideology is sort of motivating them to do that, um, you know, where is that line? Is it the ideology or is it personal responsibility? Uh, it, I, that's, it's, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. And, and uh, I, I mean, as an American, as some, I believe in freedom of speech and everything, but at the same time, I, I think hate speech is repugnant and ugly. And I think in some cases it has led to, to people that normally wouldn't be involved in, in violent things, feeling like, you know, they need to go do something. And this is common in, in extremism in general, where they feel motivated to go do something for their cause. And that's, that's a pretty common uh, extremist uh, uh, trap. Now, back, see, one of the things that people who are aware of your story will know this, but yeah, the, the, your conversations with people like Daryl Davis and Dia Khan were uh, very significant, along with others, no doubt. But those two are ones where you've been caught on film having having yeah. debate and having discussions, right? The yep. so from around about 2016, if I recall correctly, to 2019, that was your period of um, sort of slow disengage slowly disengaging with the movement um and you left in march of 2019 if my memory serves me correct that's right yep and, uh, my memory hasn't completely gone even though i'm older than we last spoke <laughs> but the thing i wanted to wanted to ask is uh, you would be aware of of, of um, the moves of, of different people within within your circle at that time. March twenty uh, March twenty nineteen was also uh, a fairly significant month in terms of what happened in Christchurch in New Zealand. Did did what happened in Christchurch cause you to to, to finally pull the pin on it? Well, I left like March third. Um, I'm not sure. Well, well, well before Christchurch hit. Yeah. <clears throat> but I did feel like, um, there was other, there was other attacks that were happening in that, in that year, um, or six months even, um, before that, I, I think in that fall, there was a, a major attack and, um, there was a lot of stuff. It just, it just seemed like the, those type of things were happening more frequently and more often where people that were involved in, um, far-right extremism were acting out in that sense and, and, and causing harm to people. So, um, you know, some of those, there was a lot of final straws and, and those, those did play a part for me. I was just like, I don't want to be affiliated with these people. I don't want to, 
um, have anything to do with this. This is not what I believe in. It's not what I stand for. And, and it's time to go. You're now in a different place. Uh, you're with Beyond Barriers. Uh, it's now, it's almost two years since you've started the organization, am I right? Yep, I believe the <clears throat> we founded Beyond Barriers in 2020, I believe. Yeah, so, so, so you're, you're essentially in the second year. What, um, what have you been... Without going into too much detail, but but what are you seeing in terms of the the, the workload and into radicalization and talking to people about disengagement has it grown? Absolutely. I mean, we've got people reaching out all the time um, for help <clears throat> for help walking away from that life and and just for advice and 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 different things like that. Um, trying to make sense of their lives and, and put their lives back together. And then they ask questions like that. They ask like, well, will I ever be able to get back out in society and, and, and do things and, and be accepted back into society again? And they, they really struggle with that. Even some of the ones that are not as, as well known, you know, that haven't, haven't been, um, <clears throat> it's caused so much damage in their, in their own personal lives and in their families and in their personal relationships and, and things like that. And they just have like this deep seated distrust for, for others. So it's, it's a lot of work for people. And, and, um, there's a lot of times that, uh, I'll say to somebody that I'm working with, Hey, could I have you talk to somebody else that's on our team? Because my workload is, is just completely slammed. And they're like, no, I don't know who that person is. So I would like to talk with you, <laughs> you know? So I, I, I end up taking on even, even more cases than, than probably I should. But um, I feel like if, if I can make a difference in somebody else's life and, and help them walk out like I did and like so many others before me did, um, it's, it's my responsibility, I feel like. It's something that I can do to, to help my country, that I can help, help humanity as a whole. And, and um you know, I, I consider it a great honor to be able to to do that. Where to from here? I mean, where's the where, what are the next steps? Because there's obviously a lot of work you've been doing. Um, are there are there moves to expand overseas? Well, we're <clears throat> you know we're trying to. Uh, We're trying to do as much as we can, you know, here in the States and internationally, you know, whatever we can do to make a difference. But um, I, you touched on something I think that is really important. And those conversations with Daryl De, Davis, Diakon, and so many other people uh, that helped, that was done. People, they were able to reach me through dialogue. And that's the same thing that we're doing here at Beyond Barriers. And it's not just in the extremist sphere, but we're seeing that this this type of thing, what we're doing, we call it relational dialogue, relational dialogue, conflict resolution, that these um, skills that we're using in this program, relational dialogue program that we're using can be applied into so many aspects of life. Even you have your divisions between the political parties that are so, seem to be uh, so polarized and so extreme in some, in some ways that, um, you know, we need to re, People need to like relearn how to talk to one another. And uh, 
you find out, um, even if you disagree with somebody on certain things, we have a lot more in common than we do different. And um, I think there's a lot of value to that. And that's, that's something that, that we're seeing that we can teach and, and help people learn in different aspects. Um, you know, I've had talks with uh, law enforcement, with US government, with um, some foreign governance uh, on a lesser scale. <clears throat> and then just, you know, civic groups, political groups, uh, religious groups, interfaith type of things and, and all, all sorts of things. Um, we're just trying to make a difference wherever we can. I've been talking to Jeff Scoop, who's the, the founder of Beyond Barriers and a former um, extremist who, who's now doing a fair bit of work and trying to get other people out of that life. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me again. Thanks, Tom. It's, it's been a pleasure. It's always uh, wonderful to talk with you and, and keep up uh, all the wonderful things you're doing there in Australia. Uh, thank you. And uh, but don't be strange. We'll do this again at some point.